Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I am Christian Sager. And in this episode, we're discussing something that I really was not familiar with until just uh, the last month or two, and that's birth calls. Yeah, and it's C-A-U-L is how it's uh, phonetically spelled, but I believe it's pronounced call, like, you know, you would make a phone call, right? Yeah. We'll get into sort of the etymology of it later, but yeah, uh, if you're unfamiliar with these, we're, we'll, get, we'll give you a sort of primer on what a birth call is, we'll talk about the etymology of them, and we'll also get into the superstition around them, which are interesting for for thousands of years. Humans have had superstitions about what birth calls do in almost every culture. Yeah, I mean, you might, on the surface of things, mistake it for like a, like a cape and cowl and think that the child is born Batman or something. But. <laughs> right. In fact, I posted uh, an image from a 1950 article that we researched for this for this particular episode, and I put it on our Facebook page, and it basically looks like like their version of what a birth call looks like is like a little kid going out as a ghost for Halloween. Like yeah. they, they drew like a baby with uh like it looks just like a sheet over their head. Yeah, like if you made a, a ghost costume out of uh you know embryonic membrane, that's what. There you go. So so you, that was a little bit of a, a peek ahead of what we're gonna get into. <laughs> so so you're you're probably listening and going, all right, guys, what is it? Tell me what a birth call is. If you're unfamiliar with it, basically. Uh, it is when a baby is born and a piece of the amniotic sac uh, is still attached to the newborn's head or face when it's born. It looks kind of like a filmy membrane in mm-hmm. some cases. Some people have described it as looking like a glass helmet. <laughs> uh, and um, basically what happens is either during gestation or the birthing process, part of the amniotic sac that we're all born within breaks away and is attached to your head. Uh, and... So you're wondering, well, why haven't I heard of these before? Well, that's probably because one in every 80,000 babies is born with one. Uh, and they're usually uh, either because of C-sections or another thing that I read that I wasn't able to back up with any sources was that um, mothers who give birth in the water tend to have uh, uh, birth call babies or or babies that are born on call, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Yeah, I was I was not familiar with this uh, at all, just because I don't I don't think anyone in my immediate family has dealt with this, uh, and any and I say dealt with it like it's for the most part it's not a serious issue. It's more of a no. curiosity uh, of all the things that can occur with a birth. The birth call is, is pretty mundane. Yeah, and in fact, uh, there, you know, in a lot of cases, people talk about it as being a very wonderful thing, that it's sort of awe-inspiring. Right. For a baby, like, born with this, when I first went into it and, and knew that there were a lot of superstitions, I thought, well, they're all going to be weird and kind of dark. Yeah. But it's like most of them are kind of beneficial or neither here nor there. Yeah, it depends. It they're depends all interesting. On, but... on the color of the birth call, which yeah. we'll get to <laughs> later, but... uh uh, yeah, so just to clarify, you know, if you're thinking about having kids or, you, or you're a pregnant woman right now listening to this show, you may be w- worrying about birth calls all of a sudden. Don't. Uh, the only thing that happens with them is that they can potentially interfere with an infant's respiration when, you know, when it's first born, just because, you know, they've got this filmy membrane over right. their face. It's like landing in a parachute and the parachute landing on top of you. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so a doctor basically quickly removes this and, uh, you know, you can keep it. Uh, most modern patients, I don't think, do. But we'll talk about all the superstitions <laughs> surrounding keeping it and all the various things you could do with it. Um, but yeah, they're, they're totally natural, but they're rare, these kinds of births. 
before we get into sort of the biology science behind this, I do want to add a disclaimer, which is that I am a man and I uh, have read about this stuff, but I don't have any firsthand experience with it. I've never uh, given birth to a baby. My wife has never had a baby and I've never been in the delivery room when a baby is born. So talking about amniotic sacs and all the things that it does and the fluid within it, you know, this is book learning right here, people. Yeah, yeah, same here. So, And certainly, as always, uh, we would love to hear from anyone who has direct experience with this uh, with this topic. If you were born with a, in uncall or if you uh, uh, know anybody who was or if you have a child uh, that was born uh, uh, with a call over them, then let us know about it. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, maybe it was earlier this year there was a, a baby born in California, I think, that was born on call and the photos of it went viral. I mean, they were all over uh, Facebook and Twitter huh. within hours of this baby being born. Uh, so, okay. What's an amniotic sac? Some of you are saying. That's what I said, because I was like, huh, birth call. Okay, it's an amniotic sac. And then I went, wait, I don't really know what that is either. Although I spent, you know, a good part of the origin of my life in one. Uh, it's an opaque bubble that covers all babies within a womb after conception. And uh, it fills up with a fluid as b- the baby grows within. Uh, and this fluid is sort of, an, you know, it's amniotic fluid, which we've, we've all heard of before. But it also includes a little bit of the baby's urine as what happens is the baby sort of drinks in the amniotic fluid mm-hmm. uh, and then pees it back out into this bag. So it's a pee bag filled with amniotic fluid as well. It's, it's a mixture. It's not all pee. Uh, and it, it's good for us, though. It has all kinds of benefits for us while we're being born. And the the first thing that it made me think of, sci-fi wise, mm-hmm. as as we tend to do on this show, was um, you remember that movie, The Abyss? Yes, where they had the, where they had the um the, the breathable pink ambionic fluid that yeah. you end up using to, yeah. to be able to dive at high was, pressure. Exactly. Yeah, and I think there's some line in the movie like, "Well, you breathe this way for the first nine months of your life, or whatever." So you're you know you're you're swimming around in this bag of liquid, but you're able to breathe within it. And you also have the umbilical cord as well. Um, but yeah, it helps with all kinds of things. It helps develop our digestion system, the, the, the actual act of drinking it and passing it. Uh, there's some help with uh, respiratory tract secretions that come out. Uh, there's also the idea that uh, amniotic fluid, you know, it's, it's not just like sitting there in a bag. It's constantly produced and renewed. So the baby swallows it, it passes it back out, and then it also emits some of it through the umbilical cord as well. So, okay, from what I read, uh, there are two sections of these amniotic sacs. One is called the forewaters, and that's, of course, the part that's in front of the baby's head, and the hindwaters are the part that's behind the baby's head. Uh, and, you know, again, like, the, there's a lot of benefits to these sacs. The fluid uh, helps the lungs to develop. It also provides lubrication. So, you know, um, whenever we hear the terminology, uh, you know, my water broke or breaking water or whatever, right. what's actually breaking is the amniotic sac and the amniotic fluid uh, rushing forth. So it provides lubrication for the baby during pregnancy, which kind of allows it to move around inside of this thing, but it also provides lubrication to facilitate the birth. Okay, so it's kind of like a slip and slide in that regard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know why we haven't invented, like, uh, some kind of toy for children that, you know, brings us all back to that magical time when we were <laughs> inside our mother's. Like a, some sort of a sphere you climb inside of and then yeah, it dumps you under a slip you just and slide. fill it with olive oil. I don't know. <laughs> 
But, uh, um, so yeah, it, there's a lot of biological reasons for the amniotic sac. So again, I want to, you know, uh, encourage you all to, to, or, or rather discourage you from thinking that this is a bad thing if it comes out on your baby when it's born. It's also a shock absorber. So you remember that, uh, science project that you did in high school? I did this at least where like you're given an egg and you oh, have yeah. to drop it off the top of a building without it breaking. Mm-hmm. I think that this is sort of nature's version of that, right? So, the amniotic sac absorbs the shock from just the mother's daily movements uh, so that we're not, you know, hurt while we're while we're inside. Uh, and there's some talk that it might protect against infection as well, although I was reading some sources that said that that's not totally verified. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd be curious if anybody else out there has information about this, if if there's some hard sources that we could look to about how the amniotic sac and amniotic fluid may protect us from infection while we're while we're still, uh, you know, within our mothers during pregnancy. But yeah, but like you said, the, the rupturing of this sac is generally the that's the the, the start starter pistol for the contractions. Yeah, exactly. And and another. So uh, my understanding as well is that if this hasn't happened for a woman who is pregnant and is due, then sometimes doctors will manually rupture the the sac. They actually showed this little device, this like prong kind of thing that they mm-hmm. use to do it. Uh, and the idea is that it's supposed to either start or speed up labor. You know. Uh, getting the whole process going. There's, it's referred to as artificial rupture of membranes, or ARM, for okay. short, ARM. Uh, some of the stuff that uh, we read about for this episode about birth calls came from a, a really interesting site by a midwife whose name is Rachel Reed, and she does a very thorough examination of birth calls, how they work, and sort of the history behind them. She, she's had experience with them. Uh, in fact, there's a, there's a photo on this blog post of her friend, I think her name was Holly maybe, uh, giving birth to a child in a birth call. Okay, and we'll be sure to link to that on the landing page for this episode at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. Yeah, and the reason why I mention it is that Rachel Reed recommends that women who are pregnant and think that they might want an artificial rupture of membranes, that they should be fully informed of the risks of this beforehand. And so we're talking about birth calls today. We're not talking about uh, artificial rupture of membranes. But, you know, that's something you might want to look into if, if it's a concern of yours. So, okay, now we know what an amniotic sac is. We know what this film is that's on top of a baby's head when they have a birth call and they're born. But uh, where did a name like birth call come from? Yeah, when we get into the uh, the etymology of it, um, it we, we see various terms for it. Um, some called being born with a veil, lambskin, water cap, lucky cap, silly hood. That's my favorite one. <laughs> oh wait, no, the next one's my favorite one. Silly how? Ha. Or lucky cape, child's little net, virgin's shift. That, and then there's. Little shirt. Huh. It's just a little shirt. You're just born with this little amniotic shirt. And I think these names tend to underlie the, um, you know, the, 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 the harmless nature of the birth call. They would, you would not be calling it the silly, uh, the, the silly hood if there was any real danger to it. Um, apparently on the, um, the, the uh, British TV show Call the Midwife, which takes place in the 1950s, mm-hmm. uh, apparently they referred to them as mermaid babies on there. And mm. that apparently is a name that was uh, thrown around back in the day as well, which ties into some of the nautical superstitions that we'll discuss. Yeah. And, and one of my favorite expressions, which you could only get from Scotland, is, uh, <laughs> 
a, a baby with a birth call was Rode and his mother's sark tail. Oh wow, I can't even. I don't even understand that. Nope, but it sounds <laughs> filthy. I'll take it. Uh, the, the actual etymology is that uh, it comes from the Latin word caput jalitium. I'm, I'm not a Latin scholar, but that's how it looks to me. Uh, which means head helmet. Okay. So again, we're getting back to this idea that it looks kind of like a glass helmet, uh, okay. like a little, little little motorcycle helmet. That, that maybe that's what they should call it now. It's a lucky lucky motorcycle helmet. <laughs> now, there's another idea out there that the word itself um, is something of a, a synonym for uh, amnion. Okay. Uh, so call in addition could mean a net, the web of a, of a spider, the base of a wig, a woman's uh, cap. Um, in any of several uh, anatomical uh, investing layers. So while it's rare, obviously they've been happening for long enough and often enough that we've been able to come up with dozens of nicknames for them. So this is not like an abnormality that, you know, uh, is just unheard of. And then there's an even more rare instance of this where, you know, a birth call is when you're born with the with the, the part of the sack on your head. Right. But you can actually be born what's called an on-call birth, which sounds like I'm saying on-call as if, like, you know, you're you're being called into the office right. <laughs> of the hospital. Uh, it's E-N-C-A-U-L birth. Uh, and these are, again, even more rare, but it's when you when a baby emerges fully inside of the amniotic sac. Oh, wow. Sac. So the, the sac comes out. Unpierced, or at least uh, it it might be pierced, but it's still more or less intact around. Exactly, yeah. And the idea here is, uh, I believe that this happens in premature births a lot because, Mm -hmm. again, like because the water itself hasn't broken, the the baby is born a little early, and uh, uh, there's, like I mentioned earlier, there's C sections and and uh, babies that are born in the water too. So so the actual you know process of birthing doesn't have the opportunity to rupture that sac. And again, like the birth call, it's not dangerous to be born this way. In fact, here's a little here's a little fun note for you. Uh, celebrity Jessica Alba, her second child was born on call, uh, and uh, there, apparently this was something that was talked about in <laughs> celebrity magazines at the time. Uh, she and her husband named their daughter Haven because they said she was born in her little safe haven. Huh. So that's nice. I suppose it's better than calling her little shirt. I'm surprised we haven't seen any, uh, and maybe we have, and people can tell us about them, any um, fictional characters, fantastic characters who are born in, on call and remain on call, like mm. like impossibly the uh, the call grows with them and they remain it's sort like of a like a boy in a bubble kind of thing. Yeah, like mm. a cross between boy in a bubble and a guild navigator, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. I, well, I'm also, I thought you were going to go in a dif- different direction with it, is that, you know, it seems to be, as we're about to get into with the superstitions, it seems to be this sort of common trope of the chosen one. Mm. It seems like that would be the perfect thing to add to it, right? Like Harry Potter was born with a birth call and it yeah. was shaped like lightning. Oh yeah, I mean uh, there are, in some accounts, some accounts say that Julius Caesar was uh, was born. Oh, is call, that right? You know, in addition to, of course, uh, being born by uh, cesarean section. Mm-hmm. Um, Charles Dickens uh, was supposedly born uh, oh. with a birth call, or I, I can't recall if I can't recall if he was uh, born on call or merely with a birth call. But well, the one the, this is where I first heard about this. Uh, is uh, Alan Moore, who many of you know as a famous comic book writer. He's uh, known for writing Watchmen, Swamp Thing, V for Vendetta, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. There's hundreds of things that he's written. Yeah. He's also a novelist. 
Uh, he did a performance art piece, I believe it was in like the late 90s, about birth. It was a piece called The Birth Call, and it was about a lot of things, but it, it starts off with his mother dying, and he finds that she's kept her birth call her whole life. Uh, and that's where I first heard about it. I'd never, you know, known that this was even a thing until I heard this Alan Moore piece before. Uh, and I'll, I'll try to provide, like, I, I believe that they recorded it as a CD and it used to be available, but I don't think you can buy it anymore. But there might be a link out there somewhere I'll try to, try to link to so people can hear this piece. Uh, and, and it was actually adapted into a comic book later on as well, which, uh, I brought in and, and uh, we can take a look at. Okay. But, uh, for the most part, it doesn't really show birth calls in any kind of way. It's just Alan Moore's poetic interpretation of the superstitions that we're about to go on with. Okay. Well, hopefully we can, uh, we can find something about that and, uh, link to it on the landing. Yeah, that would be so. excellent. Uh, so, uh, before we get into the superstitions, I just want to cite this one particular source that was great for this, and it's, it's old. Uh, it's by this, uh, guy named T.R. Forbes, and he wrote it in 1953 in the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine. But man, is it a thorough examination of all of the superstitions. It says like 20, 25 pages of mm-hmm. just every possible superstition about birth calls that he was able to find. Uh, very well backed up. The article is called The Social History of the Call, C-A-U-L. And uh, it's pretty readily available online. I found it, uh, I believe it was in like a medical database, and I downloaded a PDF of it right away. So I think anybody can access it. Yeah, and I uh, also found some interesting ones in the Encyclopedia of Superstitions, Folklore, and the Occult Sciences mm. of the World by Coralyn Daniels and C.M. Stevens. Now, in both of these, I do have to admit that we did not find as many uh, Asian and African cultural examples as we would have yeah. liked. So that's another call out to listeners. It's like if you if you know some good takes on the birth call in uh, in, in Asian or African uh, culture or any or any culture that we don't cover here, we mm-hmm. would love to hear about it. Yeah, I have to admit, like the, the these sources were fairly Eurocentric. I think there's a couple that are in South America, mm-hmm. maybe, but uh, for the most part, it's you know as would be expected from an academic in the 1950s. It's fairly Eurocentric. Right. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will dive into some of these superstitions. And if we have time, uh, we'll do a little listener mail. All right, we're back. So let's dive into these superstitions, okay? Like I said, uh, they're often believed to be something special. There's a general understanding of it being considered to be something that represents good luck when you're born with a call. Uh, the first, you know, uh, quote we'll, we'll work with here is that the beneficent effect of the call was sometimes regarded as extending to the offspring of the original owner. But according to the superstition of the Middle Ages and later, this effect would be lost if the call were given away or sold outside of the family. So in this instance, this is sort of along the lines of, I think, what Alan Moore was probably referencing in his piece was that people would keep one of these and they would pass it down from generation to generation. So like if your grandmother had been born with a call, you would at some point inherit the call and subsequently inherit the good luck of it. Hmm. Okay. Uh, there was an idea that Roman midwives used to steal these from babies that were born and sell them to lawyers uh, because lawyers believed that if they had one of these, it would help them win a case. And generally, these are, you know, they're not wearing them on their heads. I don't want to. No, but there are. They, uh, I don't know. 
not in that particular example, but there's some weird stuff people did with these. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, like uh, some cultures uh, would take them and grind them down into powder that you would consume, and they thought that that would cure malaria. Okay, well, that's that's believable. You do see in in, in various cultures uh, degrees of cannibalism, uh, cannibalistic medicine. Yeah. yeah. Uh, in Croatia, in one region of Croatia, uh, there was a historical superstition of placing a call under a dying person's bed because the idea was that it would help make their passing go easier. Okay. Again, this pro- it's a protective element, and mm-hmm. if it worked for the, the newborn baby, then perhaps it'll help the, uh, the the dying individual as well. And some people, I believe Moore talks about this in his, in his piece, but uh, uh, some people would go and, and bury them in fields sort of outside of where the baby was born. And the idea was that if it was buried in the field, that you could, you know, it, it, it would give uh, luck to this person's life as they grew up within that area. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, oh, it's always close by. Uh, there's one note that said that coal miners carried them off to carried them with them to ward off fires. OK, so there's an interesting thing here. The idea that um, birth calls are sort of uh, elemental in in their nature and there's a, a, a sort of water effect to them right they ward off fires and as we're, we'll we'll get into as well they uh they they were also believed to make their bearers immune to drowning for the rest of their uh, lives and thus the mermaids uh Hood, uh, example. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and in fact, midwives, uh, you know, uh, w- when they weren't stealing them and selling them to the lawyers, other midwives would dry them out and sell them to sailors. And the idea was that this was a talisman that a sailor would keep with them that would, you know, prevent them from drowning if they fell off the ship. There's another history, at least within Forbes study, that there are many instances in many different cultures of birth calls being used in so-called love potions. Um, in fact, the, the there, there's a sort of, you know, if you've listened to our episode on grimoire, there's a historical text called uh, Burton's Anatomy of Melancholy. That sounds like a great uh, album. <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, the idea was that uh, the, the love potion formula was um, the dust of a, lo- a dove's heart. That's a new one. I've never seen that one. Uh, it seems like it would be difficult to get, but yeah. I don't know. Maybe there's a particular way to catching doves I'm unfamiliar with. It, you would also need to get the rope from with which a man was hanged. Uh, nice use of crossroads death. Mm-hmm. Uh, you often see that employed. The tongue of a viper. Okay. And then this is what how they referred to a birth call. The cloak with which infants are wrapped when they are born. Hmm. So, I mean, if it's common enough that, you know, in this medieval grimoire on potion making, it, it would be referenced as such, you know, one in 80,000 maybe isn't as uh, small or uh, uh, rare of an occasion as we well, And it's standing out in people's memory and, uh, and becoming a part of the, the folklore, so it, uh, it resonates. Mm. Then there's one more here that I thought was particularly interesting, and I'm just going to read a direct quote from Forbes on this one to, to give you the maximum effect. In Denmark, it was thought that if a woman crept under a foal's call stretched on sticks, she would have a painless labor. But as a penalty, her sons would become werewolves and her daughters would become night hags. Huh. So that's an, that's an interesting mix of mythology and superstition <laughs> there. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that it might come up later as well, but uh, there there's also seems to be like a, just an ongoing thing about uh, horse birth calls uh, and like the various effects that they have and, and things that they can be used for. Yeah, I do want to point out um, in culinary circles, you'll sometimes see call, particularly like pork call used, mm-hmm. but it's not actual 
birth call. It's yeah. actually part of like an intestinal lining or something. Okay. But, uh, here's a few others that I, I ran across. In El Salvador, a child born with a call will be the victim of restless spirits until the nurse boils the call on the ninth day and the child drinks the broth. So, okay, so there's the consumption aspect. Yeah, and also one of the rare kind of negative call uh, mm-hmm. uh, myths out there. In Guyana, a child's call can be stored away in a pantry or closet to bring good luck to the house. Oh, and then another one from Guyana. To uh, uh, to prevent a baby seeing ghosts, tie a red string around its neck and hang it to a bag containing the call uh, of another baby of the opposite sex. That's great. Uh, <laughs> I, I like the idea that... That, that, you know, a baby seeing ghosts just so often and you know that's, that's what's wrong with the baby that you've got to go fish out one of these birth <laughs> calls and use it, tie it around its neck. Uh, here are a couple from Scotland. Uh, in Scotland, the call was called the Virgin's Vest or the Fortunate Hood and was the object of veneration. If you threw it away, sickness or death would come for the child and the young mother would be taken away by the fairy folk. And the only way to recover it is the husband would have to watch the year's yearly writing. Uh, and if I'm, if I'm understanding this correctly, this is, a, this is a Scottish tradition in border towns. It involves riding around on horses and throw the wedding gown, uh, after, uh, the woman as her, as her wraith rides past. Now. Well, that's what happens when you're rode in your mother's sark tail. <laughs> yes. Uh, and I would, I would love to hear from some Scots on, on yeah, this me too. with the folklore. Maybe they can uh, clarify some of this. It, it definitely seemed to me, and maybe this is why we found the research to be so Eurocentric, that Great Britain in general seemed to be where the wealth of uh, superstition and mythology surrounding birth calls came from. So. Yeah. But, it, but again, it does make me wonder, like, how, you know, I think I'm, probably, I'm imagining a lot of the stuff elsewhere in the world is going to be very s- similar. Probably, vain, yeah. But, uh, but there, mm-hmm. there's, there's probably some, some wild stuff out there, too. Uh, the Scots also believe that a crisp call meant, meant good health. But if you were born with a moist, flabby one, well, then that could, that could be bad news. That seems very odd to me, because wouldn't you, I, I, again, not a woman, I've never given birth, but I would assume that they're all moist. Yeah. Given what they do and, you know, they're filled with fluid. I, I, I would think it would be the opposite if you had a crisp call when you were born. Yeah. Like uh, so born I'm not sure about that one. That one sounds a huh. little, a little suspect. Huh. Well, it, it's interesting, you know, like you said, there aren't a whole lot of examples of bad calls or bad luck surrounding mm-hmm. them other than, you know, like some, some of the things like if you throw it away or, you know, you do something wrong with this good luck charm. Right. But, uh, there, there was a, um, a book from 1559 that was called De Miraculis Nature. So I'm assuming that's the miracles of nature. Uh, that basically had a whole section about different colors of calls and, and the effects that they would have. Uh, one passage from this book said, Of the helmets of children newly born, or of the thin and soft call, wherewith the face is covered as with a vizard, or covering when they come first into the world. So the idea here was that, you know, that they're, again, talking about the glass helmet, the helmet of children kind of thing. But uh, if this helmet was black... Uh, then it was basically predicting that they would have the this child would have accidents or misfortune throughout their wi- life. They might be haunted by evil spirits, uh, and the only way that they could get rid of this is again com- coming back to the consumption thing. They had to break the call up, put it into a drink, and uh, uh, you know, essentially then only then that the uh, the call would no longer be able to hurt the child. Well, I could see where if you were born with a dark call, you would kind of look like. Um 
like a baby Cobra Commander, you know? Yeah, it looked, I, I saw some pictures mm-hmm. and, and it did look a little, uh, um, like something out of a science fiction movie, not something that would happen in nature. Uh, there, this I did not see pictures of, although, you know, given the circumstances, I wouldn't be surprised if it appeared such, but there was an idea that if the call was red or if in particular it clings to the crown of the head, so it's specifically on the mm-hmm. crown, the child would be expected to eventually <laughs> achieve great success. So I'm not sure where that comes from. <laughs> Uh, but maybe the, the idea is that it's like a little baby crown or something. Okay. Uh, and then there is, there was actually a, a, a whole, uh, kind of, I guess, occult, uh, mythology surrounding the practice of foretelling the future by looking at a baby's call, inspecting it. Oh, that makes and, sense. and I'm not sure if I'm going to pronounce this right, but I believe it's Ainiomancy. Something like that. <laughs> so uh, one, one of your your less understood mansions. Yeah, it, this is like an elective at Hogwarts. Yeah. I knew Mansi. Like you don't have to take it to graduate. Uh, and then if it was white, which again I'm not quite sure how that would happen. That would bring good fortune. Okay. Um, but if you are born with just like a pure white call, that seems suspect as well. <laughs> All right, so there you have it, birth calls. You know, we're doing pretty uh, pretty well on time right now. Let's call the robot over here and do a little listener mail. Oh, Carney. A lot of people were confused last time when we when we let them know that, that Arnie had become Carney. Yeah, it's. I mean, it was confusing for Carney. It was confusing for everyone. It was confusing for me. But, you know, it's a new age. Hey, we uh, received uh, some, some cool feedback uh, from a number of you about our episode on old Buckminster Fuller. Including uh, uh, listener Hugh uh, wrote in on Facebook and has sent us uh, sent us some photographs that he actually took of uh, Buckminster in real mm. life. Those are pretty cool. We also heard from listener Beverly. Beverly wrote in and said, "I just finished listening to the Bucky Fuller episode. When you said that his lectures were ten hours long, I could believe it. He was the speaker at my high school graduation in 1971. I can't tell you what he talked about, but I can tell you. <laughs> yeah, my any of the speakers at my graduations have been the same. It's true. It's not really a it, Al Gore was the speaker at my undergraduate graduation, I, and that was uh, right when he was running for president. I don't remember a thing about it. It's not a time." When when most of us have have patience for <laughs> old men talking at us. No. But she uh, continues, says, I can't tell you what he talked about, but I can tell you that it was hot, and he talked on and on to the point that people in the audience walked out until he was done. I don't believe he had <laughs> any impact on the length of his speech. Yeah, that sounds about right for him. Uh, we also heard from uh, uh, Tatiana. Tatiana wrote in and said, Northern California is lousy with geodesic domes. Mm. I once had the experience of house-sitting for a friend who lived in one. After that, I went to live in a very well-built wooden yurt with walls that slanted outward. I noticed the difference in the way the two spaces affected me. Both were small structures. The dome curved in around me and felt claustrophobic, while the yurt, with its outslanting walls and cone-shaped ceiling, felt like the perfect shape for a human habitation. Huh. Birth call. Yeah. Birth call is architecture. There you go. Synchronicity, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, widest at arm level and completely comfortable in that subtle sense in which structures affect our psychology. Both types of structures impose insurmountable challenges where a generic furniture is concerned. The only solution is to build custom cupboards, sinks, bed frames, and storage. I built a lemon-shaped bed platform into the curving uh, parameter of my yurt, and the various angles for sitting helped bring versatility to the tiny space. I lived there alone for free, and... 
and uh, those were some of my most creative days. I drew, played sax, and wrote songs. I believe that housing is a human right, and our society needs to embrace innovation in housing solutions. While Bucky championed the promise of technological advances, modern pioneers are building beautiful, durable, efficient, and low-cost structures out of all natural materials using various combinations of clay, dug straight out of the ground, straw, gravel, and some wood that can usually be locally sourced. Well, I... Given what we read about Bucky, I wouldn't be surprised if he would agree with you as housing being a human right. I mean, I don't think he outright said that, but that seemed to be, you know, remember, he had this goal of uh, changing humanity for the better, and he saw it as his purpose to do so by affecting basically how we live, like the structures within uh, which we live. So it would make sense to me that he would sort of lean towards that philosophy as well, especially since uh, we found out that so many of those domes were uh, theorized to be used for, you know, shelters for during wartime or, or natural disasters. You know, am I remembering this correctly? Or in Napoleon Dynamite, mm. the, the film, does, uh, does uh, Napoleon Dynamite live in a geodesic dome? I don't think so. It's been a mm. long time since I've seen that. I thought he lived in like maybe i'm remembering it wrong but now I, i'm thinking he lived in like a collection of trailers connected hmm. together i don't know well, I, I, but I it definitely wasn't like a, a, a traditional style home okay i might have it confused with another uh, another film all right well here's one more this is from listener andrew i'm not going to read the whole thing but basically we uh, we were uh, we were curious if uh, dimaxion was copyrighted mm. and so andrew looked into it and he said, uh, during the episode, you wondered whether the name Dioxin was uh, copyrighted and also spoke about copyright and patents regarding the geodesic dome and that the first people to get the copyright uh, office gets rights. Um, I hate to nitpick, but as someone who teaches intellectual property law, I think it's important to use these terms correctly because misuse just per- uh, perpetrates the fairly widespread confusion and misunderstanding about the purposes of various forms of intellectual property and how they work. First, if there is any exclusive lot right to the use of the word Dimaxian, it would be found under trademark law. Single words and short phrases are not protected by copyright or patent law. Additionally, at least in the U.S., a trademark must be continue in continuous use and in association with the sale of goods or services to maintain trademark rights. If a trademark owner ceases to use a trademark in commerce, he will quickly lose any rights to keep others from using the mark. The Trademark Office at the United States Patent and Trademark Office issues trademark registrations, although registration is not necessarily for protection. The first person to use a trademark in association with particular goods or services claims the exclusive right to use that trademark. Copyright protects creative, expressive works, but does not protect the ideas contained within those works. Things like books, drawings, photographs, audio and or visual works are protected by copyright. In most countries, including the U.S., one receives copyright protection once a work is fixed in a tangible medium of expression. Registration is optional but useful for enforcing one's copyright rights. Back when Bucky was doing his thing, registration was generally uh, required for protection, but copyright has never protected ideas or inventions, uh, whether registered or not. All of Bucky's books are still protected by copyright, which lasts for as long as the author's life, plus 75 years. Uh, and, of course, I believe that's, that's an area where you continue to see varying levels of pushback uh, from uh, major copyright holders. Yes, yeah, certainly. Well, this definitely seems like an instance where this is his bread and butter, and he certainly knows it better than we do. I I would just add, from my experience in the past with uh, dealing with issues surrounding copyright and uh, fair use and things like that, that uh, I would just say I'm not a lawyer, 
And uh, that, that's what I was always taught. I'm not a lawyer, uh, so you should consult one if you really want to know the answer to these things. It sounds like he might be a lawyer. He said he works with uh, uh, copyright and fair use. Well, he uh, he teaches intellectual property law. Oh, so, okay. Yeah. Even better. Yeah. Yeah, he continues. He says, as you noted, Bucky had a number of patents. Patents are very uh, different from trademarks and copyrights in a number of respects. Patents protect human-made inventions, uh, including things like machines, compositions of matter, or processes. Whereas trademarks and copyrights do not depend on registration status, pa- patent rights are completely dependent on registration. One has no patent rights unless and until one successfully registers one invention with the patent office. While filing and receiving a patent registration is necessary for patent protection, an invention must be new for it to be granted patent protection. In other words, if someone invents and sells their invention but doesn't seek a patent for it, then another person cannot take that invention and patent it. No patent would be granted because it is not new. I don't know the details of Bucky's geodesic dome patent or what similar technology existed at the time, but it is likely that Bucky's invention was different enough from any existing technology to warrant a patent. If the geodesic dome as described in the patent was not new, then Bucky would not have been a- allowed to get a patent for it. Under the rules at the time when Bucky filed the patent, it would not have mattered if Bucky filed before another inventor. If the other inventor invented the geodesic dome as described in the patent before Bucky did, then Bucky would have been barred from receiving a patent on it, no matter when he filed his application. Okay. The U.S. now has a first-to-file system, but it is still true that an invention must be new or novel for the inventor to get a patent with some very limited grace period situations. Yeah, and if I remember correctly, I believe the person who was claiming that they had invented it uh, before him was German, maybe? Yeah, or definitely international. Uh, finally, Andy adds, on another Bucky-related note, back in the 80s, I knew someone who lived in a geodesic dome. He lived alone, and I don't think he had the privacy noise issues that you talked about. I also don't remember him complaining about it being leaky. Maybe the construction design and or materials had improved over the years. I love your podcast. Keep up the great work. Yeah, that's certainly possible as well. I, the the notes during that episode that we were reading from about the leakage within the geodesic dome were from around the time when Bucky himself was building them. Mm-hmm. So I suppose it's possible that there's some more modern ones out there that are using just different textiles or something, make them less leaky. Yeah. Yeah, I know certainly if anyone else out there has uh, has experience with uh, geodesic domes and life within a geodesic dome, we would love to hear from you. And thanks for our listeners who wrote in with uh, those varying details about domes and Bucky and patents. Yeah, so if you have information about that or you have some stuff for us about birth calls, maybe a superstition from your family or maybe a story about your family uh, member or yourself being born with one or born being born in the amniotic sac itself, let us know about it. You can write to us on Facebook or Twitter or Tumblr where we're Blow the Mind on all of those platforms. Yes, and be sure to head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's the mothership. That's where you'll find all the blog posts, all the podcast episodes, videos, and links out to those social media accounts. And you can always reach us via email at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 